was I was getting ready this week for, for the message, I was thinking about my kids, because uh, my kids always give me great stories and great things to share that are just entertaining, and they have a unique way of looking at the world. A couple weeks ago, I was upstairs putting the girls to bed, and uh, I heard Parker downstairs talking to someone, and I knew no one else was home other than Elliot, who was in his room with Legos. Um, and uh, so I peeked over the, the edge of our railing there, and Parker was talking into the Fire, uh, Amazon Fire remote control, and he was talking to Alexa, which is the, uh, the artificial intelligence on the Amazon box. And he started off with sort of normal common sense questions, like, Alexa, is it gonna rain tomorrow? And Alexa said, the chance of rain is 20%, da 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 gave all this information. He said, what day is it today? And she said, Thursday, March 20th, at 8.30 in the, at night and gave all this extra information that he wasn't asking for. And then he goes, Alexa, I love you. And Alexa said, that's so sweet, thank you. And then he said, do you love me? And Alexa goes, I haven't figured out human emotions just yet. <laughs> Parker didn't quite understand what that meant. But then this is a proud dad moment because his next question was, Alexa, do you love God? Do you believe in God? Alexa said, a lot of people have different views on religion. Now, this makes me even prouder, because my son was not going to have any of that relativistic nonsense. He told Alexa, I believe in God. God is real. You should believe in God, Alexa. I love God. Why don't you believe in God? And he's just arguing with her, right? <laughs> well, Alexa basically came back and said, I don't understand. But Parker's passion really encouraged me, right, that we should be bold in sharing the good news with other people. But his passion was a little misplaced because it wasn't actually toward a person. As impressive as artificial intelligence is, it's not a person, it's a thing. And what we're going to talk about today is that God wants people, not things. God wants people, not things. Last week, Pastor Cecil shared a passage in Isaiah 53 and 54 about the suffering Savior and how Jesus died on the cross. 700 years before that event, Isaiah was written as a prophecy of what he would go through, that he was despised and rejected among men, that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, this, and that he bore the sins of many. And we're gonna look today at why Jesus died on the cross. What was he there for? Isaiah 53, starting at verse 10, says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's interesting here that it talks about the suffering servant and all of the things that he had to go through and the suffering that he had to go through. And then it says that he will see and be satisfied. You see, Jesus had a reward that he was after when he was dying on the cross, when he was going through all of these things, when he was bearing our sins. He saw the joy set before him. He saw something in the future that he would be satisfied with. And what is that thing? Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, out of his humiliation, out of his death on the cross, he, Jesus, will see and be satisfied. Well, what did he see? The answer is in verse 10, just before this. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, whose guilt? Our guilt. When his soul makes an offering for our guilt, he shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? 
the ones that he paid the price for, the ones who he redeemed, the ones who he purchased. It says he will see his offspring and then be satisfied. You see, the suffering Savior went through so much for us, and what's amazing is it says that he did it because he is satisfied in the people that he purchased, the people that he bought on the cross. Number one in your notes, God wants people, not things. God wants people, not things. The more I think about this, the more I find it absolutely incredible. My full-time job, besides working here at the church, is as a scientist, and I get to travel around the world, and my wife is a little tired of all the travel, but I do get to travel sometimes, and go work with some uh, just amazing people and some amazing labs that are doing just incredible things. And um, it's neat in my job that I get to see some of this, uh, all of this activity that's going on in terms of studying God's creation. Well, what I specifically look at in my job is uh, very small things. We use electron microscopes. And these can see down to individual atoms. I'm always amazed as I look at pictures from these microscopes and see these atoms, that these tiny little dots, you can't even imagine how small they are. These tiny dots make up everything that we see, from the chair you're sitting on, to you and me, to the projector screen, this building, everything is made up of these tiny little dots, and it's amazing the creativity of a creator that can make everything out of dots. But then we go from a microscope to a telescope and things get really crazy. Think about the Earth, for instance. The Earth is massive, it holds over seven billion people. There's places on the Earth that's still not explored. It's a massive, beautiful planet created in one word by God, and it declares his glory. Going even further, the sun, the sun's even more glorious than the earth. It's so much bigger and so much brighter, we can't even look at the sun or it burns our eyes, as you found out with the eclipse not too long ago. <laughs> but the sun is so massive that 1.3 million earths could fit inside the sun. It is just enormous. And again, God created it with one word, and it declares the glory of God. Going out further into space, the Hubble Space Telescope can see amazing things. There's nebulas, for instance. This is the Veil Nebula, beautiful, just gorgeous. It's, it's uh, gas and dust that's getting hit by starlight, and that's reflecting into all these different colors, just amazing. This is 50 light years across. That means that if you are traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 50 years to get from one side to another. This is unimaginably large and the Bible says it declares the glory of God. Going even further, galaxies are even bigger. This is the Andromeda Galaxy, which is seen by the, the Hubble Space Telescope again. This is something like 260,000 light years across with billions of stars. The size of the sun are even bigger. These are enormous structures that God created like that and that declare his glory. The Bible says in Psalm 91 that the heavens declare the glory of God, and you can't look at these sorts of pictures and not appreciate the mind of a creator who can make this and the majesty of a creator who can make something so beautiful and so amazing and so big. And yet, what is it that the suffering Savior died for? He died for this. People. He died for you and me. Who are we that God is mindful of us, and yet he is? And God says that everything that he does is done for his glory, that he would be glorified. And so somehow that means that as glorious as all these amazing structures in the heavens are, God is even more glorified when he shares that glory with you and with me, when he has a people who love him, when he has a people who worship him, when he shares his goodness with us. He's even more glorified. 
How incredible is that? God wants people and not things. How much more so should we be the same way? We talk about the point is loving God and loving people. And that's what it is. The Bible never says love things. It says love God and love people. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah 32. This is my favorite portion uh, or passage in the Bible. This is one of the many promises that God gives us, and it uses this phrase that's used over and over in the Bible that shows God wants people, not things. Starting at verse 38, Jeremiah 32 says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's a phrase that God says over and over again. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. God wants people. He doesn't want things. Then it says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. The God who made all of those amazing things says he will rejoice not necessarily just in those things, but in doing us good, in sharing his goodness with us, in sharing his love with us. The suffering Savior came to redeem us that we would be his people because God wants people. Make no mistake, though, God had to suffer. He had to pay a price in order to purchase us. Number two in your notes, without the cross, we are people of wrath. Without the cross, we are people of wrath. Without the cross, we are not the people of God. Without the cross, we cannot claim any of God's promises. We are separated from God. We're separated from his goodness and his mercy. We're separated from all that he's promised for his people because of our sins, because of our rebellion against him. Go to Ephesians 2. This is where we'll spend most of the rest of the the time in this message. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in whence you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, before the cross, we were not the people of God and we were actually the opposite of the people of God. We were not alive we were dead. We didn't have promises, we had wrath. We didn't have obedience and and, uh, togetherness with God, we had disobedience and rebellion. Without the cross, we are not the people of God. Ephesians 2 goes on in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ, alienated from and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. What did God say back in Jeremiah 32? I will make with you an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise. And this says before the cross without Jesus, we're strangers to that promise. We're not under that promise. We're separated from God. It says we don't have God. We're without hope. The Bible talks about how we can still pursue our worldly passions. We can still go after things and try to have them make us happy. And we might find little bits of happiness here and there, but it's never gonna satisfy. It's not what our heart longs for, and ultimately, we're dead. It doesn't matter. It's not joy eternally. It's not fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore as God promises. 
because it's not being in his presence. We're dead without God. But continuing in your notes, the good news is with the cross, we are people of promise. With the cross, we are people of promise. This is amazing because we go from not the people of God, people of wrath, people who are dead, like that, with the blood of Christ on the cross, we are now the people of God. It doesn't take our earning it, it doesn't take our work, it's his grace alone by which we're saved. It's his grace alone, his free gift to us that makes us the people of God. If we are just under his blood, if we accept his work on the cross, we become his people. We become the people that he says he will rejoice in doing us good. And that's a position I wanna be in. I wanna be in a position where the God who made all of those amazing things and has that kind of power says that he will delight in our happiness and doing us good. That's incredible. Ephesians 2 goes on, looking at verse four. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we couldn't earn it ourselves, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, or by a free gift, you have been saved. Skipping down to verse 13. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, or strangers, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer strangers to the promise, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. God's love for us has overflowed into this grace, into this free gift that makes us alive and makes us children of promise, gives us access to God, and God is so good. And that's the place that we want to be. His promises are yes and amen in Jesus. God wants people, not things, and he wants it so badly that he paid the highest price for us so that he could share his goodness with us, so he could share his glory with us. He paid the price on the cross. Let's keep reading in Ephesians 2. Verse 19 again, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. What does a household of God look like? Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're being built into a dwelling place for God by his Holy Spirit. If you are one of the people of God, God wants to dwell with you. He doesn't want to just see you from time to time. He doesn't want to just spend a couple minutes here with you and a couple minutes there with you. He wants to dwell with you. And why? Because he will delight in doing us good and if we spend even a millisecond outside of his presence, we are changing the ultimate good, the ultimate joy, which is God, for something else. He doesn't want that. He wants to dwell with us at all times, to be constantly in our lives, that wherever we go, if it's at work and our family, wherever it is, we would have a sense of God's presence. As Paul says, we would pray without ceasing. We would worship constantly. We would just have an awareness that God is with us. Because any time we're outside of that presence of God, we're changing what's really good for something else that ultimately doesn't satisfy. God doesn't want to spend a couple minutes with you here and there. He wants to dwell with you. Does anyone have someone in their family or a friend or maybe the person sitting next to you that at some point you like their company but you kind of get tired of them? 
Yeah, I'm seeing a couple husbands nodding. It's <laughs> kind of a problem. Um, we'll be doing a marriage series this, this summer, I think. So there are just some people that, you know, it's fun to see them for a little while and everything, but they just kind of get old after a little bit, right? And uh, you don't really want to admit it, but uh, I'm actually going to rat out my mom for a minute, and I'm very, very sorry. I'll be calling her to apologize for this. But we, uh, Thanksgiving, a number of years back, family members who have long moved away, we don't know them anymore and whatever, so. But uh, they came over to Thanksgiving. We loved having these big Thanksgiving gatherings, right? And we love having family time with people that we don't get to see normally. But at some point, the family time just gets to be a little much sometimes, right? And so we were getting towards the end of the night and people were still there and we wondered, where in the world is my mom? And so my wife and I started walking around looking for her. And my dad's office is sort of back in a corner of the house, and the door was closed. They normally keep the dog in there, and so we thought that was normal. But we went in, and she's sitting at the computer literally playing solitaire <laughs> on the computer. Um, that was very applicable, I guess, playing solitaire. She said she just had had enough. She enjoyed their company. Now it was time for them to go, and she was going to sit in the, the office until they all, they all left. At some point, you can get tired of people but that's not God's heart for you. God never, ever gets tired of you. No matter who you are, what your personality is, what you've done in the past, he never gets tired of you. He says when he wants a people, when he wants you, when he paid on the cross for your sins so that he could have you, he wants to dwell with you. He wants to be with you always, not just sometimes, not just here and there. Now, is that how you're treating God? Do you see God as just the, the crazy uncle that you enjoy seeing on a Sunday morning, but after that, it's fun to go home and see him next week again? Maybe he's the one that you call up at mealtimes or um, call up when you're in trouble. That's not God's heart for us, and that shouldn't be our heart for him. We should want him all the time. God wants to dwell with us. And the Bible says for eternity, when we pass away from this earth and pass into eternity, we will be with God in a way that can't even compare to right now. This is just a shadow of what is to come. And in that, we, in eternity, we will always be with him forever, no millisecond away from his presence. That's our future, and that's what God wants for us right now also. He wants to dwell with his people. So number three in your notes, the church is not a place, it is people. The church is not a place, it is people. You see, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to build a place, a temple, for God's presence to dwell, so that God's presence could be in the midst of the people, so that they could go and visit God when they needed him, they could go and visit God and worship him and make sacrifices to him and hear who he is, hear the law, um, etc. They had a place, but that's not what God's heart is. He didn't want to be in a separate place. He wanted to live in our hearts and our minds. He wanted to dwell with us, and that's why Jesus came to die on the cross so that he can dwell with us. It's amazing that when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil of separation between people and God, that veil in the temple that separated God's presence from everybody else, was literally, not just figuratively, literally torn in two so that Jesus opened the door for us to be in his presence, in God's presence forever. Ephesians then says, we are the temple of God. We're being built into the temple of God. You and I are the church. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's people. But how are we the church? Well, Ephesians 2 says two things. It says that we're built into this structure, 
It says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So first of all, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. In construction, the cornerstone is sort of a central, necessary piece. So if you have two uh, walls that are sort of critical walls in the structure, the cornerstone goes between those two walls, in the corner, as the name uh, implies, and it holds the structure together. And so the first thing is, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that holds us together. He's the one that unifies all of us from every different background into one body of Christ, into the church. And he's the one that holds us together with God. Because again, without the cross, without the suffering servant, we don't have God. We're, we're not people of promise. The cornerstone is also the reference stone. The reference stone is basically what everybody looks to as they're building to make everything level, to make sure that you know, the, the cornerstone is set and then the other structure is built with that cornerstone in mind. In the same way, the church, you and I, are built into followers of Christ in reference to Jesus. We're constantly looking to Jesus. When we say at LifePoint that our, our mission is to develop lifelong followers of Christ, a follower of Christ in reference. That reference is Jesus. And so we're gonna look to Jesus all the time. That's our reference. That's our cornerstone. And finally, the cornerstone is laid first. We can't build ourselves into a structure unless we are first alive, unless we are first covered by the blood, unless we first have the suffering servant and the suffering savior making us alive in him. He loved us first, and then we love him. A.W. Tozer said 100 religious persons knit into unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life, always. You cannot have a church just by having a gathering of people in a building. You have to have Jesus first and foremost. That's the foundation of the church. That's the cornerstone. And besides Jesus is the cornerstone, it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, who were the apostles and the prophets? The apostles and the prophets wrote the Bible. The Bible in the Old Testament is basically the prophets. The New Testament is written by the apostles who spent time with Jesus and got to see Jesus in person. Our foundation is the truth of who God is. You see, we can't have a relationship with God. We can't have him dwell with us and really know him unless we actually know him, unless we are grounded in the truth of who he is. If I go up to my wife and I tell her, I just love you so, so much because of the amazing volleyball player that you are. She's gonna just look confused. She might get angry. She'll think I'm making fun of her because she is not good at volleyball. <laughs> she doesn't feel honored or cherished when I love her for something that she isn't. If my heart is to love her, but I don't know who she is, she doesn't feel honored, she doesn't feel cherished. She only feels honored and cherished if I love her and I get to know her. And my knowledge of her is based on the truth of who she is. It's the same way with God. If we come on a Sunday morning and we worship and we praise him and we get all emotional about it, but we don't know who he is, we're not really worshiping God. We're just worshiping the idea of God. But God wants a relationship with you and I. He wants to know you and I and have us know him so that he can pour out his goodness and his love on us. We can only be the church if we know who he is. There's a fascinating story in John chapter four of the woman at the well and Jesus going up and talking to her. And there's a lot to learn from this story, but there's just a, a certain part of this that I wanna look at in regards to the church. It says in verse 19 of John four, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. 
our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus literally says here, the place that you worship is irrelevant. She says, where should we worship, on this mountain or that mountain? God says, that's not the point. You're not going somewhere to worship. God is spirit. You worship in spirit and in truth. You worship in his presence and with knowledge of who he is in spirit and in truth. 2 Corinthians 6.16 goes on and says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them. Here's the key verse again. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are the temple of the living God. The church is not a place, it is people. The church is not a place, it is people. You and I are the temple of God. The question is, are you living like it? Are you living like the temple of God? Are there things that you do throughout the week that you would be ashamed to do if you were in this building today doing them? Why? This is just a building. The presence of God doesn't live here. The presence of God lives in the people of the church, in you and I. God wants to dwell with you every day, not just be a God who's confined to a place that we go visit every now and then. He wants to be with us all the time. That is amazing. We are the temple of God. That means that when I'm in my car, driving down 288 and incredibly frustrated at the traffic and the, the construction, God is with me right, right there. I don't have to wait until a Sunday morning to worship him or to talk to him or to pray with him. He's with me in every circumstance. And he says he will rejoice in doing us good. So let's ask him for his presence. Let's ask him for his promises over our life because he said it delights him to do good for us. It delights him to share his love with us because there is nothing greater than God. And so he wants to share himself with us. In terms of the church, not being a place but people. I'm reminded of a story of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a well-known preacher back in the 1800s. And at 19 years old, he became a lead pastor at a church in London, sort of a very young age, of course. And the church grew and grew and started impacting tons and tons of people, and they launched one ministry after the next. They, they launched an orphanage, uh, multiple foreign missionaries. He wrote over 50 books. Um, they had a Bible college that they launched. They had Bible studies and Sunday schools and all sorts of things that were building up, and their attendance blossomed into the thousands and thousands and thousands. In 1861, they moved into a newly completed building that they called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And I had the pleasure of getting to walk down the streets of London and taking this picture. Uh, the church was unfortunately closed. I couldn't go in. But you can see this just massive structure. This, at the time, was the largest church in the world, holding over 6,000 people. Well, people would go up to Charles Spurgeon and say, what's the, the secret to you, the success of this church? Why are you able to make such a big impact in our community? Well, he didn't point to his preaching. He didn't point to the books that they had published. He didn't point to their building and say, it's because of this big building. What he did is he took them to the basement of the church, and he had a room that he called the boiler room. And at that time, the boiler room is where power was created. It was like power plants. And he took them to what he called the boiler room, the power plant of the church, and it was a gathering of people praying. And he said, this is the power of the church. 
It's people with a heart for God who are turned toward God and asking him to work in their lives and in their community. That's what the church is. The church is not a building, it's not a place, it's people. And we are the ones who God can work through to make an impact on our community. So number four then, the building is not the target, it's a tool. The building is not the target, it's the tool. Remember the woman at the well. God isn't concerned with a place or a building. He's not concerned with things. If he's not concerned with a galaxy that is 260,000 light years across, he's not concerned with a little building on earth. He's concerned with people. That's what he paid for. The building is not the target, it's a tool. But we have this nagging temptation to make church about a building. When we do that, when we talk about, I'm going to go see God at church, or I'm going to go be in God's presence at church on a Sunday morning, when we do that, we're placing God in a box. God wants to dwell with you all the time, to be with you all the time. But if you look in Acts 2, talking about the early church, it talks about how the disciples and the, the members of the early church, they met in the temple and in their homes. So obviously a place is needed. People have to gather together to encourage one another. The Bible says don't neglect gathering together. We need to be a body of Christ unified, not individual people with the Spirit living in us, but we're built into a structure, meaning we're all part of something so much bigger, part of the move of God in our community. And so we need a place. The place is not completely irrelevant. It's just not that important. It's a tool, not a target. So if you look at these tools over here, you have a screwdriver, for instance, you can do a lot of construction with a screwdriver. You can build a lot of things. Some people more talented than others. Uh, Felipe can probably build the Eiffel Tower with just this. But it's a tool that allows you to get something done. Well, a couple years ago for Christmas, I had a set of these, and then someone gave me a DeWalt uh, uh, drill. Now, I was excited for this. Power tools. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> So this made me excited because I was able to get a whole lot more done. I was able to have a bigger impact. But how silly would I be to just put this on my shelf and say, wow, I just love this tool. I'm just, this tool is all, what it's all about. This is the point. I, this is what it is. That's not the point. This is a tool. The point of the tool is that it equips me to do something greater. It's the same way with the building. The building isn't the point. If we build a, a church or if we write books or whatever we may do, if we do that because that's the point, we're missing the point. The point is that these are tools to glorify God in all that we do, to love God and love people to a greater extent than we ever had before. So as Pastor Cecil talked about, we're going to be building here. We're going to be expanding. But it's not about the building. It's about the people of LifePoint. We have that shirt that says, um, ask me why I love that, the church. And my answer every time is the people. The people is why I love LifePoint. Because we are people with the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We are people committed to God. And God is doing something incredible if we will just follow him, keep our eyes on him, if Jesus is the cornerstone. Well, this morning as we prepare to close, if you would bow your head and close your eyes, just start asking God what he would have for you this morning. The Bible says that he dwells with us, and that means we can talk to him at any time, but he can also talk to us at any time. So God, this morning, as we come before you, all together, gathered together to worship you as a unified body, I ask that you would speak to us. 
I ask that you would reveal your heart to us, that first of all, you would show us how much you love us, the breadth and the depth of your love that you died on the cross for us. God, you can do so many things. Your majesty is unimaginable. You are glorious and you can create galaxies with a snap of your fingers and with one word. And yet, you love us so much that you gave your life for us. I thank you for that love. I thank you that you have brought us from death to life, that you are building us into a church, a body of Christ, into a temple of the living God. Would you unify us? Would you teach us to follow after you all of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings, but that we would have an awareness of your presence every millisecond of every day because you delight in doing us good and we don't want to be away from that goodness, that love, that joy that can only be found in you. We thank you for what you are doing this morning and pray that you would be with us the rest of the day and this week in Jesus' name, amen.